You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous, the podcast about Broadway flops, scandals, and new work. I'm your host, Ebony Vines. And I'm your host, Pamela Shandro. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Theater Geeks Anonymous podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network and all your favorite podcast listening apps. Thank you. you. What's up, theater geeks? It's like ASMR. <laughs> Which is like, I, you, I'm sure you can't hear it, but I have like the fake Yule log. It's going on the TV. It's been on all day. Oh, I love that. Me too. Crackling fire. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel warm, even though it's not emitting any heat. Yeah. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. Oh. I do wish I had a candle though. It's like my sister's the queen mm. of candles, but there are none in here. <laughs> You'd be like, hey, Elise, get me a candle. Yeah. <laughs> I think tomorrow I'm going to ask for one because she does. She's the queen of candles. And I was like, there's not one in this carriage house. Not it's even so crazy. an unscented tea light. No, nothing. nothing. Elise, <laughs> what a bad host. No, she's amazing. <laughs> no, I know she is. <laughs> I think it's probably because she's afraid an Airbnb or will burn down her house. Oh, totally. Which is no, totally you, valid. You would never want to offer candles to an Airbnb or no. to someone who is transient and not family. Yeah. Never. So I think that's why there aren't any in here. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was in speaking of fires, because we did in the <laughs> la- other episode we recorded talk about the apartment fire you had. Yes. When I was at my sister's wedding, so it was like the night before I think I was leaving yeah because they got married in Charleston it was the night before I was leaving I was at a residence inn and these were like you know you have a little kitchen a living area and all of that and it was a super reasonable price and it was like nice like it wasn't like bed bug you know nice um but no external doors that's always the thing I look for with yeah. a hotel. It's like, if it has internal doors and it's cheap, I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but I, it was like morning, I get awoken by a fire alarm. Oh and man. The first thing is you're like, am I, cause you're dead asleep. And so yeah. when you hear it, you're like, am I dreaming? <laughs> is this real? And so I laid there for probably too long Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because I was not unsure of what was actually happening. 
And then I was like, wait, I don't, what is, okay. Oh, I guess I better get some shoes on. And so I had to hurry up, get my shoes on, you know, grab something to put on, cover me up and like get my key and a cell phone and go out the door. And the whole hotel is evacuated. We're all standing outside. Fire trucks came (laughs) and I did smell it. I smelt it before. Like as soon as I got in the hallway, somebody had like a real fire. It was a real fire. Somebody had fallen asleep when their like pot was on the stove or something like that. Oh, yep. And all you have is like a blackened crisp bottom of your saucepan. Yikes. I've done that before. I've forgotten that I've been boiling water and then like remembered and went to it and it was just completely dry. The bottom of the pan was like, oh man. And that was scary to me. But it was so terrible. Like, yeah, I don't, it was not on my floor that it happened. Right. So I'm like, how, how bad is that room burnt to a crisp? I have to tell you a story. Okay. (laughs) Uh Oh, we were in Sacramento, California with the Mm -hmm. phantom tour. Mm -hmm. And I was staying at a residence in basically right across the street from the theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we residence ins are great because they have little kitchens or kitchenettes, yeah. and sometimes they have two bedrooms, which are great because then you can share with someone and yeah. you know save the cost, right? Uh, so I was sharing with someone, and then also we decided to invite some girls up for uh, some breakfast on a Sunday morning before the mm-hmm. matinee, and I was making pancakes and set off the fire alarm. I didn't think anything of it. Right. I just, I, we were doing the wipe thing with the, you know, wa- waving a towel in front of it. It just wasn't going off. So someone opened the door to the actual hotel room to like, let the smoke kind Uh-oh. of dissipate and it, it set off the fire alarm in the hallway. Yeah. Now I tried to call down to the front desk and say, Hey, listen, we were just making pancakes. It's fine. I'm so sorry about this, but they oh. were like, no, um, those are hardwired and they cannot be turned off until the fire department comes and checks each floor. And so I was mortified Yeah, and also felt terrible because this is a Sunday morning mm-hmm. and I have now woken up an entire hotel of people <laughs> who have all va- evacuated, but like, and I was like, okay, I guess we have to go. And Juliet was like, Pamela, it's not an actual fire. We don't have to go anywhere. And so like, we just sat there in the room eating pancakes. And I remember the, the fire department coming into the room and we were going, I'm so sorry, guys. Do you guys want a pancake? <laughs> it was so amazing and awful. <laughs> and I was, you know, like it is, it's mortifying. It's awful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, why did you put a fire alarm or like a fire detector smoke detector so close yeah. to the stove that just the mere act of cooking is going to set it off. Were you yeah. not anticipating people cooking in a kitchen in your hotel room? I ju- that was what ultimately I was like, I'm embarrassed and now I'm angry. <laughs> it's fine. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I did have that moment of like, was it me? Which everybody has, <laughs> yes. you know, oh, you totally do. <laughs> You totally do. Like, did I accidentally fall asleep with the hairdryer in bed with me? Yes. Yeah. So be quiet. I'm going to talk about my episode. Okay. Okay. Today's episode is Violet the Musical. I'm so excited. 
Me too. Because I got to see the revival. Me too. Uh, it was so good. I was so excited because like, well, we'll talk about it. <clears throat> so <laughs> in Pamela's hot take, I don't want to give you my hot take until the end. Okay. <laughs> so uh, some of my resources were wikipedia.com, of course, ibdb.com and broadwayworld.com. And I will mention some uh, specific newspaper articles later on in the episode. Violet is a musical based on the short story, The Ugliest Pilgrim by Doris Betts. The story follows Violet Carl, a disfigured woman in her late 20s, who travels by bus from her home in Spruce Pine, North Carolina to Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the hopes of being healed by a televangelist. The first adaptation of The Ugliest Pilgrim was in 1981 in a film called Violet. The short film was directed by Shelley Levinson and starred Dee Dee Kahn as Violet, Patrick Dollahan as Monty, Rodney Salisbury as Flick, Tom McGowan as Dr. Pleasance, who, sidebar, was one of our uh, wizards when I was doing Wicked, and he's the nicest man in the whole entire world, and he was also on Frasier. That was how you probably would know him. <laughs> uh, Belle Richter as Mrs. Higgins and Doris Hess as Effie. This particular short film won the Oscar for Best Live Action Short Film in 1982, and it was adapted once again, 12 years later, into the musical that we'll be talking about today. Most importantly, the music was written by Janine Tesori and libretto by Brian Crawley. Janine Tesori! My love for this woman has, it has no boundaries. She is amazing, and let's talk about why. Jeanine Tesori is an American composer and musical arranger, best known for her work in the theater. She is the most prolific and honored female theatrical composer in history, with five Broadway musicals and five Tony Award nominations. She won the 1999 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Music in a Play for Nicholas Heitner's production of Twelfth Night at Lincoln Center, the 2004 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Music for Carolina Change, and the 2015 Tony Award for Best Original Score for Fun Home, shared with Lisa Cron, making them the first female writing team to win mm -hmm. that award. Mm -hmm. I remember this. I do too. And I just want to emphasize here that the projects that she has created and attached herself to are all very women-centric. Yeah. She has written adaptations of a few existing films, and I would also argue that those films are also fairly empowering to women. Yeah. Her major works include Fun Home, which mm -hmm. is basically the story of a woman who knew from a young age that she might be a lesbian. Her father was, was actually gay and kind of going through the thoughts and feelings of transitioning himself. Totally woman-centric. You've got Carolina Change, woman power. Shrek the musical, which I will also say is probably more about Fiona than it is about Shrek. Right, it is, yeah. Thoroughly Modern Millie, hello. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. all in the title there. And of course, Violet. Mm-hmm. She opened and oh, oh, and she opened Kimberly Akimbo this month. I'm so excited to see that show. Me too. I think you and I need to go together. We already yeah. talked about it, but anyway, <laughs> but, but, and like, that's going to be a real gem. I'm super excited yeah. about that. Enough said about that. <laughs> 
Tesori made her Broadway debut when she arranged the dance music for a 1995 revival of, revival of How to Succeed in Business. I did not realize that she did that. And I believe that that is, that's the Matthew Broderick, Broderick one, right? Oh, has 1995. To be. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. So I didn't realize that. I mean, obviously it says in her bio at the beginning that she did musical arrangements, but I guess I never really tied her to those kind of things. Uh, in 1997, she composed the score for the off-Broadway musical Violet, for which she won the Obie Award, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Musical, and the Lucille Lortel Award for Outstanding Musical and Arranged Music for the Johnny Mercer Review Dream, which she repeated with the 1998 revival of Sound of Music and the 1999 review Swing. I had no idea she was attached to Swing. I love that review. <laughs> love it. She also served as associate conductor for the Broadway productions of Secret Garden and The Who's Tommy. I love her. This this could just be a love letter to Janita Sorry for all I'm concerned because I <laughs> she's just ah oh, love her. I love her. She first got onto my radar with uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie, which I was absolutely obsessed with. Obsessed. I love Thoroughly Modern Millie too. I watched um, Forget About the Boy on the Tony Awards <laughs> so much. My yes. VHS is all crinkled right there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it really is. Yes, it's so, it's so, and listen, I love the original movie. Love it. I, and I never I've told you like my biggest disappointment with New York City is that the elevators don't need you to tap in them to work. I that okay. was like my oh. big disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I ever visited New York City was in August of 2000. So yeah, a year before September 11th. Or no, it was a month before September 11th. It was 2001. So I got in and out before all of that happened. But I went with a friend of mine who had an apartment still there. We were doing a show in this horrible little town called, well, I'm not going to name it. It was a horrible theater, horrible artistic director. Anyway. <laughs> that's another story for another day. Um, but he and I, like, I was having a really hard time and he's like, okay, pack a bag, comfortable shoes, get in the car. You're not going to know where we're going until we get there. And I was like, okay. And we drove all night until we got to New York city. And I literally was like completely struck the entire time we were there. Like it was, everything was magic. Even the rats, they were all magic. This was my first time. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Thoroughly modern Millie. So we get to his apartment building and it's, it's the elevator from thoroughly modern Millie, where you open the grate, you walk into the door, you close the grate, you push the button, the door closes and you go up. I started doing the time step and he goes, Oh, oh don't do that. It'll shut down the elevator. <laughs> and I was like, I wonder how many other budding, budding Broadway stars did that and then shut down the elevator. But I made me laugh hysterically, but <laughs> needless to say, thoroughly matter. Millie, I, the mute, I watched the movie first. The movie is amazing. You've got Mary Same. Tyler Moore. You've got, you've got Carol Channing. You've got Julie Andrews. Like yeah. you cannot get any better than that. Yeah. But somehow, and I've not said this a lot about a lot of shows. Usually one is better than the other. The movie is better or the book is better or the, you know, stage show is better. You, in this instance, I can honestly say that I love both of them 
in completely different ways. They're just both standalone. They're both amazing shows. Full stop. Now, <laughs> on to the librettist. <laughs> Ryan Crawley is a playwright and screenwriter. He is at work on a commission for a play about jazz performer Valida Snow and a new musical Down There with composer Lewis Finn. Flynn, excuse me, Lewis Flynn. Recently, he wrote the book and lyrics for A Little Princess with composer Andrew Lippa. Did we talk about that or did we just talk about The Little Prince? We only talked about The Little Prince. Okay, I thought so too. Um, that debuted at Theater Works of Palo Alto in the summer of 2004. So maybe it just hasn't come to Broadway and that's why. He also wrote the book and lyric for Violet with the composer Janine Tosori, which was mounted off-Broadway by Playwrights Horizon in 1997, then remounted in a concert version in 2003 to help inaugurate their new theater. For the libretto of Violet, Brian won the Kleban Award. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly or not. And I've not ever heard of that before. Have you? No. Mm -mm. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Um, prior to the Playwrights Horizon production and on its behalf, Violet was given the Richard Rogers Musical Production Award and an AT&T Onstage Award. Afterwards, besides, uh, besides the Lu Lucille Lortel Award for Outstanding Musical, Violet received the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Musical over all the year's Broadway offerings, as did Paula Vogel's play How I Learned to Drive. That's not part of Brian Crowley's uh, synopsis, but it was part of the, or bio, but it was in here. <laughs> um, but that is the first time that two off-Broadway pieces, oh, this is why it's important. The, this was the first time that two off-Broadway pieces took those top awards in the Drama Critics Circle history. So that is kind of exciting. Brian's plays have been developed or staged at Lincoln Center, New York Theater Workshop, and the o uh, Eugene O'Neill Summer Theater Conference. He majored in theater studies at Yale and got an MFA in acting from the American Servitory Theater in San Francisco. Brian is a member of the Dramatist Guild. All right. That ends funny, but that's his bio. <laughs> so Violet was developed at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's National Music Theater Conference in 1994. It premiered off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons on March 11th, 1997, and closed April 6th, 1997. I don't have a show count, but that's a little less than two months. Uh, the cast featured Lauren Ward as Violet, Michael McElroy as Flick, and Michael Park as Monty. Other cast members included Michael Medeiros, Stephen Lee Anderson, Amanda Posner, and Robert Westenberg. The Encore's Off-Center series held a one-night production at the New York City Center on July 17, 2013. Violet began previews on Broadway at the American Airlines Theater on March 28, 2014, officially opening on April 20, 2014, with Sutton Foster starring as Violet. The production was directed by Lee Silverman, with musical direction by Michael Rafter, choreography by Jeffrey Page, sets by David Zinn, costumes by Clint Ramos, and lights by Mark Barton. The musical had been revised and was staged in one act, as was done at the Encores in July of 2013, um, which was essentially a staged concert. The musical closed on August 10th, 2014, uh, and the statistics 
posted on IBDB don't give a number of performances that that one was either, but it does kind of, um, the statistics show that there was kind of a, a slow decline in the capacity percentages, which I imagine then was the reason why they eventually closed. Now I hear you asking me, Ebony, but what's it about? And I'll tell you. <laughs> well, you know, I'm not because I saw it. <laughs> Well, I hear you asking, audience. <laughs> the audiences, our Sorry. geeks are. Geeks, I know you're asking me right now, but what's it about, Pamela? And I'll tell you. <laughs> With a ticket, a suitcase, and a heart full of expectation, Violet Carl waits for a Greyhound bus in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. It is September 4th, 1964. For a moment, she sees herself as a young girl, carefree and singing a folk song, before her face was horribly disfigured in an accident. A local nosy's question breaks violence, Violet's reverie. I'm going to say violence a lot because when I was writing it, I kept writing violent <laughs> and I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe uh -oh. it's subconscious. I know. <laughs> What's going on in your life right now, Pamela? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the, lo the local nosy uh breaks in and asks her something and uh it's prompting her to kind of look forward now to the healing that she expects to receive from a televangelist in Tulsa that will help her transcend her provincial little town as the bus departs the station the passengers muse as to where this journey might lead them the passengers pile off the bus to get some food at a rest stop in Kingsport Tennessee in the grill Violet meets two poker playing soldiers Flick and Monty Flick is a black sergeant in his early 30s, Monty, a younger white corporal, a paratrooper. Both are bound for Fort Smith, Arkansas. Violet asks to join their game, and as they deal her in, she privately recalls how her father taught her to play. Back on the bus, Monty teases Violet about the preacher. He obviously has no faith in it. He takes a book she carries and plays keep away with it, which triggers Violet's memory of the day she found the catechism in her father's bedside table. Later in the Nashville station, Flick wants to know exactly what it is that Violet wants to change. So with the help of movie magazines, she shows the soldiers the physical features she'd like best. Uh, she shows the soldiers the physical features she'd like best, but they offend her when their attention wanders. She sits apart from them as the journey continues, recalling once again her younger self singing the folk song, which turns out to have been the very moment just before the accident. As they are approaching Memphis, Flick seeks Violet out to apologize for offending her earlier. He suggests she can take care of herself without the help of the preacher. Stopping in Memphis overnight, the trio pass a hooker on the way to the boarding house where Almeida, the landlady, resists housing a white woman until Flick slips her some money. While a song plays on the radio, Violet dozes. Monty has entered her room and he finds the book and starts to read things that Violet has written in it. She awakes and confronts him, prompting Monty to explain himself. Then Flick enters the room with some drinks to start the night off. The threesome venture out to Beale Street Music Hall, where the, the sight of Flick dancing with Violet attracts some unfriendly attention. When Monty moves in and makes a pass at Violet, Flick leaves the hall. Violet follows him back to the boarding house. The landlady interrupts a tender moment between them, and in the middle of the night, Monty stumbles in through Violet's unlocked door. He wakes her, makes love to her, then falls asleep in her lap. Violet travels with the men to Fort Smith the next morning on her way to Tulsa. 
Flick and Violet pledge to write each other, but Flick gets upset about the events of the night before, rightfully so. Violet, especially because she has had all of these kind of moments with him that have been much more than just physical attraction. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's my two cents. (laughs) (laughs) So he's upset. Um, Violet escapes to the bus bathroom where she rehearses what she's going to say to spurn Monty, afraid that he'll otherwise reject her first. In the front of the bus, Monty rehearses his own spiel at Flick's direction. But when it comes time to part, Monty instead asks Violet to meet him on the return trip at Fort Smith. She promises nothing, cleaving to her plan, and the bus pulls away. I believe this is when Act 2 starts in the Mm -hmm. original. In Tulsa, Violet surprises the preacher in rehearsal with his choir. He pawns her off on Virgil, a young assistant, and in her frustration, she recovers the memory of being carried in her father's arms after the accident. Soon, she slips away from Virgil and returns to the televangelist's empty chapel. Violet takes out her catechism and empties slips of paper, which she has covered with Bible quotes onto the altar. When the preacher discovers her, she pleads with him to help invoke her miracle. When nothing comes of this desperate attempt because she is already healed... She demands he see her for what she is, scarred and hideous and a prodigy of pain. She looks to the heavens for a moment. The preacher is replaced by her father. They fight until he apologizes for what he has done. I think it's necessary here to explain that Mm -hmm. the accident that has been referred to is somewhat the father's fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was chopping wood and the shiv came out of the axe. The axe blade went flying toward Violet and cut her in the face, disfiguring her. Yeah. Uh, Back to the plot here, Uh, aware that something about herself has changed, Violet assumes it is her scar. She reboards the bus, convinced she has had a miracle. When she gets out at Fort Smith Station, Monty is there waiting. His efforts at sympathy make plain to her that her face has not changed at all. Crushed, she rejects Monty's invitation to marry him before he ships out to Vietnam. Flick is also at the station and recognizes that Violet has changed. Uh, though her scar has not. He entreats her to stay with him. Violet's healing is complete when she takes Flick's hand and commits to a new life with him. The end. (laughs) So I know I mentioned the original cast of the off-Broadway show, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to go through all three casts here as well. Okay. Um, Because, you know, they deserve it. (laughs) Um, So for the off-Broadway cast, as I mentioned before, Lauren Ward played Violet, Michael Park was Monty, Michael McElroy was Flick, Stephen Lee Anderson played the father, Amanda Posner played young Violet, Robert Westenberg played the preacher, the bus driver, the radio singer, and the bus driver for, and Cass Morgan played the old lady and the hotel hooker. I love that Robert Robert Westenberg was in this, by the way, and like knowing because his voice is so recognizable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so listening to the original cast recording of this off-broadway show i was like oh i love that robert Westenberg. <laughs> i love this he's he's amazing oh and i missed um there's also earl bus driver to radio singer and bobby was played by michael medeiros in the encores one night only off-center series you've got sutton foster playing violet van hughes playing monty joshua mm. henry playing flick chris sullivan playing the father Emerson Steele. I know. Isn't that fun? Um, Emerson Steele playing young Violet. Christopher Sieber playing preacher, bus driver, radio singer, bus driver four. And then uh, Kiala Settle 
playing old lady and hotel hooker. Wow. I know. And Austin Lesh playing Earl bus driver to radio singer and Bobby. And then following it to Broadway, you've mm-hmm. still got Sutton Foster playing Violet. Mm-hmm. Colin Donald takes over for Monty. Yes. Joshua mm-hmm. Henry stays in his flick. Right. Amazing. And I love Colin Donald's who he's such a good narcissistic idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua's um the song that he sings in in that musical, it's like become one of his yeah, like he sings it, it everywhere. Sing. It's like his mantra now. It's, I and here's the yeah. thing. That is my favorite song from the cast album. Mm-hmm, Let mm-hmm. it sing. Mm-hmm. I love that song. And I know it's inappropriate, but I sing along with it like it would be my role. Like, I love it so much. It's such a good song because yeah. the message behind it is just as good as the lyrics and yeah. music is as well. Like, it's just such a great, I love it. And Michael McElroy, who I listened to initially, mm-hmm. is so good too. Like, he's mm-hmm. they're both so compelling as Flick. Uh, Alexander Gemignani plays the father on Broadway. Yeah. Emerson Steele reprises her young Violet. You've got then Ben Davis taking over the preacher role. Annie Golden taking over old lady and hook, oh. hotel hooker. And then Austin Lash reprises his role as Earl. Uh, right. So we're going to get to the critiques now. And there was actually quite a bit because you've got these three different performances right. productions now I didn't find anything about the encores and you usually probably won't because it's just a one night only kind of thing right. so but there's quite a bit written for the Broadway version with Sutton Foster and I did find one article uh for the original mm-hmm. off Broadway so the first couple of ones that I read here are going to be for the Broadway production first one is New York Times written by Charles Isherwood on April 20th 2014 If the time has come for Ms. Foster to take her place among the first rank of Broadway musical theater performers, fittingly in a season uncommonly rich in fine work from women, the moment also seems ripe for Violet, originally produced off-Broadway in 1997, to be acknowledged as an enduringly rewarding musical. Ms. Tesori has since gone on to write more acclaimed and sophisticated shows such as Carolina Change and This Season's Fun Home, but her music for Violet can stand along with her best work. Good review. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Next one we've got is from the Chicago Tribune by Chris Jones, also on April 20th, 2014. Much of Violet takes place on a bus, which lends itself to minimalist staging for with just a few chairs. The flashbacks should be simple too, but once Violet and her GIs exit the bus, this production, which is designed by David Zinn, can't decide how or whether to build on its initial simple style. The set expands and contracts. Some of the onstage musicians don robes and join a gospel choir, but you never really feel the pull of place or of lost time, nor the comforts of a well-defined imagined world. Foster throws herself into this unglamorous role, her face pale and her body propelled into a world of no self-confidence. It is a very honorable performance filled with craft. Foster never condescends and she clearly enjoys her character's intelligence, although she too struggles toward the end with the need for climax and consequence. Mm. Also fairly good, but you're kind of getting us a gist about maybe some issues. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this third one from Newsday, written by Linda Weiner, also April 20th, 2014. So here it is finally, 17 years later, officially considered a revival in a taut, vibrant, dirt kicking show directed with exuberance and minor- minimal fuss by Lee Silverman. 
Colin Donnell plays the hunk, surprised to find himself drawn to her. Joshua Henry portrays the black man, the first Violet ever knew, who sings what uh, that he wants her to see me the way I see you. In the middle of it all, fosters Violet with lank hair and lanky limbs and a glorious voice that cuts through complicated emotions without ever belting. She embodies both Violet's defensive armor and the childlike trust in a miracle that will give her Jean Tierney eyes and Ava Gardner eyebrows. Yes, this is an ugly duckling Cinderella tale about beauty being skin deep, but it is filled with unexpected details, compassion for its quirky characters, and especially a rigorous score that reaches its own destinations through gospel, bluegrass, and heart-aching anthems to tentative hopes. Really not a bad review for the bunch at all. No, I mean, they're very yeah, all of them are pretty favorable. So this one is written by Ben Brantley from the New York Times back on March 12th of 1997. This is the original off-Broadway show. Okay. What the show fails to do is to provide any compelling sense of character. Ms. Ward's Violet, whose scar has left the audience imagination, is an appealing, supple-voiced presence, and the actress works hard at whipping up some emotional ardor. But from the beginning, Violet seems like a shrewd, scrappy, and sure-footed creature, a little like Sissy Spacek in Coal Miner's Daughter. And you've ne you're never convinced, as you have to be, of the desperate spiritual pain with which she lives. Mr. Anderson and Mr. McElroy give off an arrestingly understated strength, and they need it since their characters bear the brunt of the evening's more blatant sermonizing. The truth is never so pat, says Violet. Try and wrap your mind around that. This show, unfortunately, lets you wrap your mind around its message nearly from its inception. That's not a good thing when the musical is, for the most part, the message. I think what he's getting at is that it's all very preachy. And it doesn't have an arc as much as it's just, this is the moral and we're going to tell you why. <laughs> did and did I, he review the, the Broadway version? He did not. Uh, Charles okay. Isherwood did. I don't know. Was Ben Brantley still working at the? Yes. Oh, it's okay. only just recently, like oh, okay. in the past, like year and a half or so okay. that Jesse Green took over. Gotcha. So no, I mean, he didn't. And maybe that is because Charles Isherwood was given the opportunity to do that. And it also could be because he wrote the original right. that they were like, mm, we're just going to get a, a fresh take on it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think I understand his point, but here's my hot take. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm biased mm -hmm. through and through. I've had this cast recording since it came out in 1998, I think 1998 or 1999, it was like my last year in high school, essentially. Mm -hmm. That was at the time that I used to just go to the back of the CD case and, and read it and then decide if I wanted to buy it. Mm -hmm. And the story intrigued me and I was not disappointed. I love the songs and I love the performances and I never felt an emotional disconnect from Lauren Ward. In fact, it was very difficult not to feel for her while mm -hmm. listening to the tracks. That's my opinion. Obviously, yeah. it was not everything. And I also didn't see it on stage. I got to hear a, a canned version that was. Uh... I, can I can I throw <laughs> yes. in there a reason why probably is like. Yeah. You're like smack dab in the middle of their target audience at that yes. moment in time. Like You're Ben Brantley is not, right. he's not their audience. <laughs> yes. No, you know what? That is so, yes. I didn't even think about that. Yes. You're absolutely right. 
I was on the cusp of being a woman, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing what I wanted to do, but not really being able to get there yet Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. completely. And I, and I was also, let's be honest, very emo, (laughs) (laughs) not to the extent of like a goth emo, but like Mm -hmm. I was musical theater emo. Like I wanted to listen to the musicals that made me cry. And then I wanted to (laughs) sing them while crying. Like (laughs) that was who I was. That was me as a musical theater girl. Um, And this was one of those musicals that I just loved so much to sing along with because you do get this kind of emotional arc from the beginning of the CD until the end of the CD. Right. Perhaps yep. you didn't see that arc in the actual performance. And I'll talk about that too, because I did see um, the stage performance as well. Um, but okay. Well, and I already mentioned that Flick was one of my favorite, like that was my favorite song, but he's also one of my favorite musical theater characters. Yeah. It's a good one. It is a good one. Mm-hmm. Like he's, ugh, he seems so real. Yeah. Um, and I think the recording is kind of full of that um, humanity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and honesty. It's full of honesty. I think that's why I liked it so much is just it, it sang true. <laughs> the thing I, I as well love about Flick and Violet is that so often characters like that, especially the Violet character are portrayed um, as very timid, yeah, sort of like turtle shell folks. And I only saw Sutton's portrayal, but she wasn't like that at all. Yeah. Like Lauren, she stood up either. for herself. She wasn't <laughs> taking people's crap. Totally. And she was sarcastic. She, she would call people yeah. on their crap. Yeah. She'd look and, them straight in the face and say, what, what are you looking at? Yeah. And so often that's not how it is. It's, it's the like timid girl who's like using her hair to cover the Mm -hmm. scar and just like trying to hide yeah and she you know she wasn't she she wanted she wanted to look different but it didn't stop her from being herself and just being who she was and so that was really it would have been so easy for her to just leave town not tell anybody what she was planning on doing get her miracle and come back and surprise everybody but what she did was she said to everybody I dare you to tell me that this miracle isn't coming my way Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. dare you you Mm -hmm. look me in the face and tell me I'm being a fool and I love that Mm -hmm. and honestly Mm -hmm. too I mean if you really think of the the relationship between her and her father before the accident was fantastic. Mother has been dead basically her whole life. So it's just been her and her father. And then after the accident, there was like the, the father was filled with this guilt, undeniable Mm -hmm. guilt over disfiguring, maiming his child Mm -hmm. accident or not he's taking on full responsibility and the brunt of it. And also Violet is fully blaming him, fully pointing yeah. the finger at him saying, you ruined my life. I can't marry anybody now. Look at me. I can't leave this ugly, horrible town. Look at me. It's that kind of kind of antagonistic mm-hmm. relationship then from that moment until the father dies. Mm-hmm. So I suppose in that way, I mean, she was, she kind of always was like that. I don't know yeah. that, that that kind of an accident would change that because you do see it as young Violet as well. Her character right. is very strong-minded. 
and basically probably by being raised by her father. Right. Right. You know, outside of outside of society, societal expectations. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my two cents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I also saw the Broadway production with Sutton Foster. It is sparse and without affect, but not in a bad way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it mentioned in one of the reviews that the bus is just a bunch of chairs lined up. Yeah. People are kind of, you know, bumping along mm-hmm. on when the bus is moving and um you really didn't need any more than that. I agree. Yeah. You didn't because it's just you're just telling the story. You're meeting these people and the people's stories are much more interesting than any set piece could be. And in fact, how would you create a bus, like an actual Greyhound bus on stage that didn't kind of limit view of the people that you're getting these stories Mm -hmm. from? So I agreed with that. I enjoyed it. Now, I will say that I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed the original cast recording. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think it's also because I had had this production that I had already directed in my mind. Mm -hmm. But I did enjoy it. (laughs) I did enjoy it. I will also say, and this might not be a very popular opinion, I love Alexander Gemignani. Mm -hmm. I did not like him in this. Okay. I wanted him to fight her as much as she was fighting him. And Mm -hmm. he seemed to kind of turtle in Mm -hmm. on himself. He was very subtle and very subdued, which in parts is appropriate but not the whole time. Like I really needed, and maybe this is the impotence that, that Violet feels. She needed him to just say, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. sorry that this happened. It was my fault entirely. I should have checked the ax, you know, but, but instead it kind of creates this huge rift between them. Anyway, that's my opinion on him. But having said that, I love him. And yeah. he's, I know that he's a great performer. So I think it really is the choice that yeah. I didn't like mm-hmm. as much as the performance or the performer. Mm-hmm. I wish I could give more definitive answers as to why this show failed. Um, maybe it just, I, I guess it just couldn't find it. I wrote, wait, I wrote, mayhaps it just couldn't find its audience. <laughs> mayhaps. 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 I don't know. It's not a real word, but I wrote it and it made me laugh just now. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that's kind of, that's the end of Violet. That's all we're saying now. We're not saying perhaps, we're saying (laughs) mayhaps. I love it. (laughs) Get a t-shirt on the back. (laughs) Our logo on the front, on the back, mayhaps. Love it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, here's Here's the thing that we're still kind of dealing with. I think it's getting better, but it's still an issue. Mm-hmm. So for example, like when I produced the women's cycle in 2019, there were several men that we heard from their wives or their partners that they were like, I, my husband's not going to come see this show because it, because it because- has the word woman in it. Yes. You're so stupid. And a, a bunch of men came like, yeah, I just want everyone to know like tons, like a bunch of men. Sure. Came. Um, but that was that frustrated the crap out of yeah. me. And when we, 
when you were talking about Ben Brantley's take, I was like, huh, that feels like a man who's not used to sitting through a story where the lead is a woman. Yeah. Good point. And a young woman. He'll watch young men have stories for days, mm-hmm. but there's a real difficulty in watching a young woman mm-hmm. have be be the protagonist and have this battle with society's vision of beauty. Like that's literally the whole show is about like this woman has been battling society's idea of what beauty should be her entire life. Mm -hmm. And so you're forced to sit there and watch her battle through this and figure out by the end that it's all a load of bull honky and she's not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And she's going to do what she wants and live the life that she wants. Right. Yeah. And so I feel that I guess I wonder if the reason why it struggled as not all shows do, I mean, fun home, super, you know, female centric and, you know, was open for years. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, I wonder about that because it's having this conversation like last week about beauty standards Mm -hmm. being the last one of the last large pieces of society that we're still dealing with and struggling to talk about in effective ways to smash stupid expectations about what that means like we're still in this um battle and like I see windows of hope Mm-hmm. but we're like, there's just so many aspects of it. People are unwilling to talk about. And that yeah. show forces you to sit down with it for like an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah. And talk yeah. about it and think about it. And yeah. Yeah. And no, I can agree with you completely. I mean, I don't think, I think 100% of women in the modern world have all felt the constraints of societal beliefs about what they should look like and how they should be. Yeah. And we have also, though, been taught to, to emotionally regulate us and them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Men don't have mm-hmm. to do that for themselves. We've been taught to do that for them. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. So if you do consider a man sitting through this story, of course, he's not going to feel emotionally connected to any of the characters. Mm-hmm. Of course, he's going to feel like he's being preached at. Some are, because it sounds Some like are. those other men. Well, I'm talking critics. specifically about Ben Brantley in this, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you're right. And the, the newer version was slightly changed though, too. It was, it was just one act, mm-hmm. you know, so it was shortened it, you know, there it's some other things had changed to like different songs in it as well, but specifically mm-hmm. Ben Brantley, because he's the one that said he felt like he was being preached at from the inception of the show. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly I can understand then why he did feel that he was being yeah. preached at if he doesn't understand that this is the problem that has existed since that's right. The the moment the planets were aligned, like the, the moment God breathed <laughs> life into this earth. Yeah. We have been dealing with this kind of yeah misogyny on, you know, a various amount of levels. And it didn't certainly get bad until the 19th century, mm-hmm. maybe earlier than that. I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting to me the way that you framed that because yeah, it, it does kind of put a new perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway i like that show so I thanks for doing this show. i'm a fan you're welcome i had fun too 
I love, I freaking love this show and I freaking love Janine Tesori. Me too. And I, I just like everything, everything that woman has touched. <laughs> she's brilliant. Yeah. And she continues to be brilliant and she's only in her sixties. So she's got decades left. She has so much. Time. I cannot wait to see what she comes up with. <laughs> <laughs> well, next on the docket's Kimberly Akimbo. So we have yes. to go see that. I cannot wait. That'll be so fun. I've been looking at the box office and yeah. I'm concerned. Oh. So we need to go as soon as I get home. Okay. It'll have to, oh, 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 before uh, we, the end of the like, year. Yeah. No, it'll, I won't get home until January. So oh, we have oh, to go okay. in January. Well, it'll be, it'll be, I get home January 30th. So oh, that's right. So it'll be February. Oh, I hope it's still open. We, yeah. I'm I concerned. Mean, how could it not be? It's wonderful. You I know can, me. I, I look at wonderful. the. Broadway grosses. So I'm concerned. I don't know that. Okay. Cause they've done really good with press. So I know, but I looked at the grosses is what I'm saying, (laughs) (laughs) but give it some time. Maybe it just, well, the problem is February are the rough, you know? know? So I was like, if it had been higher and I was like, okay, they'll, they'll have a little bit of a buffer. Yeah. They might be okay, but I'm not lying. I'm concerned. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Maybe they'll at least come out with a cast recording if we're not able to see the actual show. I don't know. Oh, fingers crossed. I know. Fingers and hands and my legs are crossed. I'm going to look again before I come home, but. Yeah. Concerned. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> and there you have it there you have it go see stories about women y'all come on they are I should just be as interesting if not more more i mean it let's be real because especially if you consider all of the just being oppressed for our entire lives the least you can with, do is spend 80 dollars on a theater ticket about us <laughs> right what I mean is the story has to be that much more interesting because yeah. how would we have told it unless we broke through the barrier that was created for us at birth? That's right. <laughs> but you know what I will say? Uh-huh. And this goes into what you were saying about um, seeing glimmers of, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, of hope, uh, yeah. of hope about, you know, this whole beauty being, you know, this, uh, any kind of standard of beauty being in existence because that's stupid (laughs) we are all of us so unique and in our uniqueness is where the beauty lies but anyway i've been saying that for years and it's falling on deaf ears however (laughs) shoot i lost my train of thought what was i gonna say let me it'll it'll come to me oh that uh the glimmer also comes with the fact that women are really calling calling men's bluff Mm-hmm. they've been telling us, well, you need us. You need to look a certain way because you're never going to attract a man. Well, now suddenly women are being actually very happy single and cats and dogs are pretty much, much more awesome than men are. So, <laughs> so guess what? You know, we don't actually need you because I can get my own credit card and I can get my own mortgage and I make my own money and it all goes to me and my dogs. Right. So right. I don't, I don't need you. But little conspiracy theory about mm. like these laws that are being overturned that would yeah. set us back and like make it so we're unable to have our own bank accounts and stuff like that feels like a bit of like aggression over the fact that like we've gotten so uh-huh. independent 
that like, you know, cause I mean, politicians are literally saying stuff about like women are too educated. You, if you try to take, okay, listen, because this is the, this is the first episode of Handmaid's Tale, right? I don't know if you've watched it. I can't I watch can't. it. I'm I have too, to take it. It's too close to home. I it can't is too do close it. to home. But here's and the I thing. read it in college and Ugh. that's all I can do. Yeah. The show goes into so much more detail, which is why I can't watch <laughs> it. Like I've watched, I watched part of the first season and I made it to an episode where I was like, I can't watch this anymore. <laughs> I can't. Like it's just, it, it hits too close to home. It's too real. Too and I, it's too real. But in the very first episode, you kind of see that some politicians, I won't say Republicans, but even though that's what they are, some politicians are saying these exact things, right? They're yeah. saying that women shouldn't have a voice that should be the man of the household. There's also this kind of underlying story of um, pregnancies being way down. Like they're, people are not able to get pregnant as easily as they used to. And so now the, the birth rate is, is just decimated. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now they're kind of thinking about that and they're putting laws into place that will make it so that if you get pregnant, you have to, to carry the baby to term because children are not being born. So, okay. So that's all kind of in the under, in the under story, right. It's all in the periphery of what we're actually seeing, which is June and her husband and their family unit, right? So she has a daughter and she's married to this guy. And the first episode is basically like showing, she goes to work one day and the manager comes out and says, sorry, ladies, um, none of you can be at work anymore. Uh, you have to leave. And they're like, what? This is ridiculous. We, what are you talking about? And he's like, no, um, you don't work here anymore. Uh, if, if you're a woman, you have to go. And then like in steps, these guys with like AK 47s. So at first they're like, this is like ridiculous. Like what is going on? And so she goes home and is complaining to her husband saying, I tried to access my bank account, but I can't like, they froze it on me. And he goes, don't worry, babe, I got money. I'll take care of us. And I was literally like, I was, it made me so angry in that moment because it was mm -hmm. like, that's not the point. Yeah. The point is I made money and now I can't access it. Yeah. Not that you aren't there to take care of me. Great. Thanks, honey. But that I cannot take care of myself. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. I hate it so much. I know. That's why I can't watch. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> now I know that I told you back in June of 2020 that kind of going on those protests and going out and being with the people that are supporting these issues like BLM made me very nervous mm -hmm. for my physical safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think that if that were something to have happened here mm -hmm. and it, and this is awful to say, and now I'm like realizing how racist it sounds that it would directly affect me, then I would probably go out into the streets and risk my own. Oh, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to go think about that. Oh, that makes me really sad. We're con constantly doing the unpackaging. So true. Oh man. Wow. But that I'm, I'm sure is a lot of people who thought that. Yeah. But you like, I'm in this spot where I like that. All of that is all of that is yeah. Well, it's like I have most. to be at every freaking protest. Yeah. <laughs> like. 
Ugh. This is depressing. <laughs> at least you know, at least you know, because it, it's true. It was back there and now it's out and you're like, and now it's there. Oh, oh crap. Crap. Okay. I've got some stuff to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I, you know what I was thinking also, I thought yeah. I was better than that. I thought I was better than that. And that's, I mean, obviously we're not, we're just not, I mean, this is all stuff that's been ingrained in us since yeah. it's in our DNA now. It's, it's, in, it's so hard to extract these little pieces of, of bias that yeah. have kind of just been imprinted on us. So Oh, all right. I'm glad that I got it. I, I'm glad that I, I'm glad you got it too. I'm glad that it worried itself out of my brain, but that makes me feel really sad. No. All right. Well, please forgive me. I guess everybody. Yeah. Heavenly, I'm so grateful for you. I truly am because I don't have these conversations yeah. in a normal capacity. So it is really important because I would, I would never have said those words out loud and then realized what I was actually saying if I didn't mm-hmm. have you to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. That's, Not that I'm using you for that. But. I know, but it, it's going to happen because this is. is the stuff we talk about. Yeah. Wowie, wowie. All right. And on that high note, learning. I learning know, we're all doing deconstructing and learn it's like a big old celtic knot it really it is that's what rachel cargill that's why she calls it that because it's <laughs> oh, like okay i mean there's still stuff that i i have to unpack like yeah. stuff you know we're talking about beauty and it's like i grew up around so many white people and still most like that's a majority of my friends. Sure. And so I'm, I'm constantly trying to do like my own un unpeeling of like self-hatred oh, that sure. was just ingrained in for me from, you the know, comparing and contrasting and yes. yeah. You know, so it's like, we're all trying to, and just also like all the stuff I didn't know that I, that I wasn't taught about, you know, the ways in which this country, this world has oppressed us. And then, you know, even when we talk about like emotionality and I see, you know, my white counterparts just being able to cry with such ease. And I was like, why, why I can't, I'd never feel safe enough to be like that. Like, yeah. Just cry at a drop of a hat. Like I can't do that. The way that I kind of understand that too. Well, cause I've always been like that. I, I'm very emotionally accessible. I think it's but always on the surface for me, but the way that I, I, learned, I kind of, I oh. learned though, it's something specific to black women. Oh, 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 because I, I, I learned about that. And then I talked with my therapist who thank yeah. God is a black woman. <laughs> And it's, it's this thing of, we've been so ingrained as black women to be caregivers, right? And so in order to be caregivers, we're constantly taking care of people. And so there's the stepping back of emotions because we're expected to be the quote unquote strong one who's Mm -hmm. taking care of everyone. So it always feels like our emotionality doesn't, there's not space for it and we don't have a safe space to have it. Right. Yeah. And so when I think about that, I mean, that's a lot why in 2020, a lot of people started saying, you know, I am going to say these things 
that might be hurtful to you because these are the harms that you have done to me. Mm -hmm. And I need you to not cry. (laughs) Yeah. Because your tears Mm -hmm. then stop me from being able to have the emotions that I have, because then that's forcing me to take care of you. Oh, wow. Even in a relationship as close as you and I, you wouldn't be able to kind of pursue a conversation with me if I were to get emotional. I, I think I've unpacked enough to where I think there's certain people, yeah. you know, that I, I feel like you have I to can feel do that. You with. have to be able to trust. I know that there is definitely that element of it, That's but, wild. but there's definitely, you know, still folks who, when I do cry in front of them, i get angry at myself about it. Oh, sure. Um, and I feel like, and it's, it's very rare. Cause I'm, I've always said, I'm not a crier, but I'm like, I could be, Yeah, it's possible. I've just never felt like that was okay to be sure because I, I have been not just as a black woman, but mm-hmm. also because of, you know, I was the oldest of a single mom. Right. Yeah. So I have been taking care of people my entire life. Yeah. That makes me sad too, Ebony. But that's, that's, again, that's all like this unlearning that we're all doing this unpacking of the ways that white supremacy has oppressed us on all these other levels so that we don't see, you know, what we have to do to be different and change for the better. Yeah. It keeps us blind and veiled. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that, well, what I was going to say about the tears, because there was something that I read about, Mm -hmm. well, and I think I saw a video about it too, but for a long time, because white women were also oppressed, we, the only power that we had was in being able to manipulate the white men around us. Mm -hmm. And tears were the easiest kind of form of currency for that. Right. Um, I think coming out of this, I don't know. I've never, I never have felt like I've been on the inside. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? I've always kind of felt like I was living on the island of misfit toys. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. I say that all the time. Yes. Like I never, <laughs> I never fit the mold. Right. So yeah. I think at a certain point I just stopped trying and, yeah. and then was able to kind of be like, whatever, I'm going to cut my hair short and no, I'm not going to wear makeup anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm going to dress however I want to dress. And I'm going to live single and completely by myself. And I'm going to fill my house with dogs and I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and because I was able to get to that point as early as I did, because mm-hmm. I've not been wearing makeup since my early 20, well, my mid twenties is mm-hmm. when I really stopped wearing makeup. I was able to kind of be invisible in this society. Mm-hmm. And then was able to really observe the actions and behaviors of people within society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I still haven't fully completely deconstructed this and like really pulled it out piece by piece. But it is really interesting how I think now we are getting closer to more and more women and, mm-hmm. and men too coming to that kind of consensus, like that, you know what, I can't fit in. So I'd rather be on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Then it has been. So it's almost like, 
a lotus flower opening up, which is my favorite. Totally. Right. It's like so many petals, like they were, they were all kind of in one little bud in the center with a couple of little petals on the outside. But now all of a sudden the entire flower is opening up. And so you've Mm -hmm. got everybody on the outside and we're all perfectly happy to be there. And now there isn't an inside and we are fully realizing that beauty is a construct and society is a construct and feminine and masculine are a construct. Mm -hmm. And it's all been to keep every single one of us down, women and men alike men, I think are going to have a harder time coming out of it because they've ha- especially white men have had the power for so long. And now they're going to lose a bit of that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's going to be equalized. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, I, I remember conversations when I was young about reparations for black people and the commonality of the arguments against it were always like, well, I didn't have slaves. I wasn't you know what I mean? Like I wasn't yeah. a slave owner. Why should I pay them? Do you know what I mean? And it's like, that's not the point we've been. And now that I'm older, I can, I can, I can informatively say, oh, oh, that's the reason why reparations should be granted. Right. Oh, right. because, because as a society, we have kept our boots on the necks yeah. of black people. Right. Even after we freed them. Right. For a very long time, your mm-hmm. people have been oppressed and we right. have been the oppressors. Right, right. Knowingly or unknowingly, it is our mm-hmm. responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, there was one thing you said that like something popped in. Mm, it'll, I'm sure it'll come later because it's not there right now. Okay on the outside looking in lotus yes it was the lotus flower (laughs) because I'm obsessed with lotus like I I was looking up I wanted to buy myself a ring that was a flower yeah and so I was looking up this was like two years ago and so I was looking up flowers that were and for whatever reason lotus flower kept popping in my head so I was looking it up and I was like why (laughs) and I love the analogy you used and also like lotus flowers. The reason why I chose it for the ring that I have now is specifically because of how strong they are Mm. and all of the, like all of the natural disasters they can survive. Yeah. And still find a place to land and bloom and grow and, and multiply. Wow. It's one of the few flowers. I mean, hurricanes, floods. Yeah. It can it can survive so many <laughs> horrific situations. Wow. And and I was like, I was just thinking back on my life and, you know, how my siblings and I have survived so many horrific situations, things yeah. that so many people our age would not have survived. And I was like, that's my flower. The one that can survive hurricanes, floods, droughts, (laughs) droughts, because it it can also like, because it can hold so much water and even the seeds from it. Like if a, if a hurricane or something windy, just like blows it out of the water, the seeds fly and it multiplies. (laughs) That's awesome. 
it's just such an incredible flower. Yeah. And so I think about that also when I think about the misfit toys yeah. that have been ostracized or put on the outs and had to survive being othered and have had to survive being looked at even by their family as like this weird one who doesn't quite make sense and doesn't quite fit in, but still fights another day to just be themselves fully in their truth and in their wholeness and how difficult that is. But they, but for the ones of us who survive, like the great power that's in that. Yeah. And that we can also be like this flower, this lamppost, this beautiful thing that people can look at and say, well, mm-hmm. if they can survive all of that, I can too. Yeah. Right. So that's my that's little beautiful. I love that. I don't know. I mean, lotus flower isn't something that comes to my the forefront of my brain very often. So that is kind of serendipity as well. That's <laughs> nice. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end. We're ending on a flower, violets a flower. All right. Better. <laughs> Thanks for listening, friends. Thank you. And uh we'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Theater Geeks Anonymous. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGAB Way. And on Facebook at Theater Geeks Anonymous. And if you want to tell us how much you love us, or you have a great story about one of the shows we've talked about, drop us a note at TGABWAY at gmail.com. You can also support us by going to patreon.com forward slash TGABWAY. Until Until next time, time, geeks. geeks! Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.